and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Matt Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Hyde. Having started a strength and conditioning career in the National Health Service in the UK, he now works privately with elite soccer players at the youth academy and senior professional level, which makes him the perfect guest today to discuss how you can use field-based strength training to enhance your game speed. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Andy onto the show. Andy, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Morning, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. So, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Yeah, so my name is Andrew Hyde and I'm a strength and conditioning coach in football. Uh, I'm based in Manchester in England. Um, so, I did my degree in sport and exercise science and my master's in strength and conditioning at Leeds Beckett University. Uh, whilst I did my master's, I was an intern with Leeds United Ladies Academy um, for a year. And after that, I started working for Science for Sport and also as an SNC coach in the NHS. And uh, at the back end of last year, I left the NHS to go self-employed um, as an SNC coach privately. So I now work with um, academy football players and also uh, senior professional football players as well. Absolutely excellent, mate. So today we're going to discuss uh, game speed. Uh, especially in football. So can you give us a little introduction as to what game speed is and how that differs then from, for example, top speed? Yeah. So when I refer to game speed, um, I'm talking about being fast uh, in the game versus being fast in ideal scenarios. So if we take a like top speed, for example, um, we're looking at that as a kind of maximum physical output. In an ideal situation, so you might be looking at, um, again, as a, as S&C coaches, when we assess top speed, you know, you might be looking at like a 30, 40 meter time sprint with a vest on or um, timing gates. Whereas in the game, just, that's not going to happen. Um, team sport, you know, especially football, um, the, the environment is chaotic. Um, you've got opponents in front of you. You've got teammates to the side behind and in front of you. Um, you've got the ball at your feet potentially or the ball being played to you um, so you've got all these not just not just the physical qualities to consider but the technical aspects of football um, and the cognitive aspects as well so all of these tie into that game speed um, the cognitive aspects especially when you're looking at maybe agility so how fast are you um, in different directions but also um observing an opponent or a teammate, um, deciding what to do and then reacting to that stimulus. Um, and also in these chaotic situations and environments, how well are you um, able to orientate your body and get yourself into different or as close to as ideal positions and produce a lot of force and produce it quickly to make things happen quickly, basically. So that's uh, that's a few of the constraints. Um, are there any other constraints which in football at least, mean that game speed is then different from top speed? Are there, are there things which you you really highlight and say, you know what, like in that scenario, that's going to really impact how we're going to produce force and speed? Yeah, the main one, of course, is if the ball is at your feet. Um, if the ball is at your feet, um, it's hard to get the same physical outputs that you'd get without having the ball at your feet. So, um, you know, the speeds that you reach are not going to be as high as it would be without the ball. Um, and also, you know, it depends on how you're dribbling with the ball. 
are you taking small touches or is a winger knocking the ball down the wing 20 metres and then chasing after it? So, yeah, that's that's going to have an impact on um, how players sprint um, because they've got to be able to adjust their technique around dribbling the ball and taking a touch on the ball in between every step. Uh, so, yeah, I would, I would say that's the biggest um, the biggest constraint that we have. I think uh, it's interesting later to touch on how you can train these different aspects with that in mind. But before we get there, obviously there's a lot of different skills and one of them is dribbling, which you just mentioned. But how do you then identify different feed, field skills which might be necessary uh, but generally are overlooked? So when you give that example of that the top speed sprinting, um, not many clubs will then measure top speed sprinting with a football. So... How do you identify field skills? And later we're going to move on to how we train those skills. Yeah, so I always start at its kind of most basic um, components and general components that you could probably break down for any team sport. So, you know, you'd be looking at your acceleration, top speed, um, deceleration, and then also your multidirectional speed as well. Um and then what I do is I use a model by Ian Jeffries um, to look at the execution of how skills happen to then break things down a little bit more specifically. So you can break it down into three different components, which is um, an initiation uh, of movement or a skill followed by a transition and then uh, a naturalization. So the initiation is like the start of a movement or change of motion. The transition is where you're setting up a position following this um, so subsequent movement can be like performed and executed. And then your actualization is like your final movement, which will determine success of whatever it is you're trying to achieve or do. So if we took like a defending example. Um, your initiation might be a defender scanning whilst maybe backpedaling as players moving towards them. Maybe an attacker's coming towards them. Um, with that scanning, you might be then be observing and deciding what to do. So following this, um, they might decide that they're going to close down an attacker. So they might maybe plant with the back foot and then begin accelerating forwards to close that attacker down. And then uh, that would be the transition movement. And then the actualization movement would be the tackle itself. And then if we took like an, an attacking example, um, you know, you might have an attacker that's scanning, um, looking to receive the ball, um, almost, almost maybe facing away from the ball. So sometimes they can scan and the ball's passed to them. Um, they're looking over the shoulder at the ball, but they're facing the same way the ball is going. Um, so that would be your initiation. And then your transition might be um, like a fake plant step. Um, so dropping to go one way and then actually knocking the ball the other way to accelerate in a new direction, um, which would then be actualization. Now, it's not that simple because um, these things could be like chaotic. You know, a defender could tackle you. It could be numerous transition periods um, or numerous actualization periods as well. So it's not that simple at all. But when I'm breaking down maybe individual or isolated skills, or I'm trying to communicate that um, to an athlete as simply as possible, um, that's one good way to kind of communicate how a certain skill or quality might might happen. So in that sense, the, the positional differences are, are clear. Um, and it's not a one-size-fits-all fits all approach. Um, 
how do you then start to work on these things? Because you mentioned, for example, uh, a foot plant to move forwards. Um, how do you work in the gym and how do you transfer that onto the field? Because obviously they're, they're two very different things. Obviously, if you've got an athlete who's at a lower training age, um, obviously you're going to get more return from the general stuff that you do in the gym to develop the kind of the general qualities and physical outputs on the field. You know, I mean, you have already discussed that especially in football because the ball is at your feet and there's such a technical um, aspect on the game. You know, it's, it's only going to transfer so much. So when I'm talking to my athletes and to other coaches about developing the actual field skills, I prefer to focus on what we do in our field strength and conditioning. Um, one of the first places they always start, this is just, this is just uh, to touch on because it's kind of a unique uh, characteristic to football is that um, like a high intensity deceleration action uh, can occur like nearly three times more frequently than high intensity accelerations in football and the load per meter um, is 65, well it's around 65% greater than any other match play and around 37% greater than acceleration um, so we always look at, you know you've heard that concept before most coaches have, we always look at building the brakes first over short distances and in, in different positions um, to basically start building that capacity to slow down before we start speeding up. Um, another thing we look at is how we how we set up our change of direction drills. So like if I'm working with, again, maybe one, one of the academy players that's at a younger age, we're looking at more long-term athletic development than we might be looking at generally developing the change of direction skills um, at different angles. Um, and with different techniques. So obviously the, the angle you change direction at is going to affect the technique you use. Like if we're working on a, a 180 change of direction, which doesn't really happen in football that often, um, at maximal efforts anyway, um, you know, you're going to be looking at that planting off the inside foot to absorb force and then pushing off the outside foot, early rotation um, at the hip and knee and foot of the inside leg. But in football, 70, well, it's around 70% of change of directions um, in games are at an angle less than 90 degrees. So when you look at that context, um, you know, how the change of direction happens is going to be much different. It's going to be at high speeds, um, usually by wingers or forwards. Um, you know, you're going to be looking at a direct and kind of single sudden change of direction. It's not like football or rugby where the ball's in your hands and you can duke and kind of fake and plant step multiple times. Um, so yeah, those are those are, those are kind of two things that I would look at. But when we get onto the real specific positional differences, um, if you're looking at like your central midfielders, the way that they usually turn and change direction, um, they usually have the ball at the feet, and the defenders are usually kind of out of their vision because they're in the centre of the field. They could have defenders behind or in front of them. So with midfielders, I usually find, and this is not really from research; this is more from my own analysis. You know, watching games, watching some of the athletes that I coach play, watching clips on YouTube, watching games on Sky or BT, midfielders usually are turning with the ball at the feet and it's more tight circular turns um, to lose defenders and create space. So they're not at as high speeds or performing as intense uh, cutting actions as maybe wingers or forwards. Um, and obviously these physical outputs with the ball at the feet are going to be lower then with the ball at the feet, by how much, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see some research on that. And then um, 
you know, touching on having, you know, the ball at your feet. Um, attackers usually know when they're going to cut or change direction. So if we take like maybe like Ronaldo, for example, Ronaldo could be sprinting towards a through ball or with the ball, but he might know in his head that he's going to perform, let's say a Cruyff turn and cut back or maybe cut inside. So when he knows that, he starts, he will start adjusting his speed and body position accordingly and earlier on to like deceive the defender and make his cutting movement. So when you look at that, if you compare it to something like rugby, where, you know, um, a back might have uh, the ball in the hands and the sprinting at maybe, you know, much, cl- well, yeah, much closer to the top speed and then performing an intense cut to go in a different direction. It's good. The physical outputs and the technical demands are very, very different. And when you're then looking to train all these things, because in terms of analysis, obviously there's some there's some really interesting stuff going on there. But when you're looking to train this on the pitch, what kind of uh, drills are you setting up so that the athletes can get the specific demands which are required of them? Yeah, so I'll use I'll use a bit more of a, a needs analysis again just to base my justification for that here. Um, so in the game, um, and again getting onto that game speed. And this is where we're touching on um, that. You know, this is this is why it's different to top speed. Is um, forwards, wingers, and fullbacks typically are performing, you know, more sprints than um, your central players. And forty-five. This this research is a little bit older. It's from like two thousand and twelve. I think the study that I'm quoting. Um, obviously, the game is very different now to what it is then, and it's obviously different depending on the league that you're in. Um, but in the study, 45% of goal scoring opportunities that they um, analysed were preceded by a linear sprint from the from the goal scorer. Um, and goal scoring success is associated with your sprint speed and your dribble speed. So with forward players, um, the most common action that usually happens before the goal is like a, a linear sprint and then usually a cut and a shot. So, you know, we'll be looking at and potentially as well before that linear sprint, they might already be in motion. So it might not be the case that um, we need to work. I mean, I mean, they might do, but, you know, it means that working on an instantaneous push and projection and an explosive first step is not always going to happen. They might be jogging, walking or running before that linear sprint. So this is something that we need to consider uh, with the linear sprint drills that we use for forwards. Um, and what comes after that? So again, considering the execution of these field skills um, after the linear sprint, are we then progressing drills to where something happens after, where they need to make a cut? And then are we, are we including the ball at some point to where potentially a, a shot needs to happen with a defender in front of them, you know, under a time constraint and um, high pressure as well? Um, and then if we look at the opposite of that, what is like the centre-back doing? Um, if a forward is performing a linear sprint, the centre-back usually is going to be performing a linear sprint as well, but the difference is the centre-back has to be looking at the forward. So we usually get torso and leg separation in terms of direction. So the centre-back is sprinting in the same direction as the forward. So the feet and the, the knees and the hips are going one way. But then the trunk, the shoulders, and the head are trying to look the opposite way. If that makes sense, so they're yeah. they're looking at the forward and at the ball, and it's quite a hard skill to execute. It's it's not the same as just a typical linear sprint. So 
Um, with centre backs, I usually, you know, we usually will do just some linear speed work first because it always helps to be fast. And generally, being faster is going to help being faster in the game or with the ball at your feet or with that torso separation. But once we've generally worked on that linear sprinting and that linear speed, you know, maybe over shortened over shorter distances with harder starts for acceleration or over long, longer distances with softer starts um, for top speed, we'll usually pair them together. So we go into that kind of game-specific scenario and we'll have the attacker, um, you know, maybe the forward performing a linear sprint and then the centre-back maybe starts a little bit further in front and has to start with um, that, that torso uh, and leg separation or maybe they start facing uh, the attacker and they start backpedaling and, and then have to switch. Um, there's loads of different ways you can mix things up and add balls in and it can get... It can be simple, but it can also get chaotic and complicated, but um, it's also good to experiment with. Um, and then moving on to wingers as well. Um, so wingers and fullbacks. So because wingers are playing out wide, um, they perform a lot of curve sprints. Um, forwards will as well, actually. Forwards will perform curve sprints to running behind um, centre-backs. Um, but wingers perform a lot of curve sprints to get round fullbacks. Um, and these are usually like larger sprints um, like in terms of the angle, because I'll have to run round the fullback and the fullback will run a smaller curved angle sprint inside of them to try and catch them. Um, and then the fullbacks uh, and the wingers as well, they'll also sprint with some sort of torso and leg separation, but it happens a little bit different to the centre-backs because they're playing out wide. They're usually looking inwards, so they might be sprinting um, for the attacker, you know, the, the winger, it might be sprinting forwards. For the fullback, it might be sprinting um, forwards with them, but um, the they can be sometimes looking inside towards play. So if a, if a winger sprinting forwards and let's say a, a centre midfielder has the ball and they're waiting to play the ball through, then the winger has to have the legs uh, facing forwards and sprinting forwards, but then the trunk and the shoulders and the head facing inwards. Uh, to be looking at the midfielder and looking at the ball and where it's going to potentially run onto it, if that makes sense. And um, the fullback will have to be scanning this, um, whether it's scanning the midfielder or scanning the the winger, um, to stay with them while still moving in that direction. And these uh, these kind of things, uh, the kind of drills that you're going to set up in your field-based uh, S&C sessions? Yeah, so with, with that context, um, Again, we might start by working on some sort of isolated component of torso and leg separation um, where where the players are just, just literally working on um, and learning how to have the feet one way, switching the feet one way and the torso going the other way. So it's a very that, that's more of a kind of an isolated component. And then um, following that, we might put them um, into, into like a practice drill um, at, at a sub-maximal intensity where we just work on maybe like um, a bound or like a kind of a tempo run where the face in, the face inside on, so the shoulders, head, torso one way, um, but they're actually sprinting forwards, um, trying to keep the hips, knees and feet, taking them forwards that way. Um, and then we'll just, we'll gradually increase the intensity of that as, as they pick up that kind of motor skill and that pattern. And then once we've done that, again, we might put them into game 
specific drills. So, for example, if it was like a curve sprint, we might have um, the winger starting maybe 10 metres out from the curve sprint with like a linear jog. And the fullback will start facing them at the curve sprint, if that makes sense. So they're about 10 metres, probably not as far as 10 metres, but they're maybe a couple of yards behind them and they start shuffling back at some maximal intensity. And as the winger builds up um, in speed, the fullback will obviously start back shuffling quicker and quicker. And then you'll, that's when you'll start to fat. That's when you'll start to find that naturally, messing my words up there, uh, naturally as they, as they increase speed, you'll start to get that um, switch in the way the feet are facing. The feet will start facing forwards to take them that way. And that's when you get that, that torso and leg separation. And um, then it's, it's up to the winger when they just kind of hit the gas and go for it. Um, and the, they have to follow the curve line and then the fullback has to follow them on the inside and try and catch them. And again, you can you can get creative with this. You know, you can you can add a ball in there. Um, but again, you just got to consider how that changes the drill and what you want from it. Because if you want wanting to improve like the maximum outputs on that drill um, or with that quality, then you're not going to want to use a ball at first. And also, the ball's going to add complexity. So you might want to try and master those skills. And concepts without a ball first and get the players to understand um what they're doing and then add the ball in and I, yeah i also think it's important to before you do any of this stuff is to just have a conversation i always have a conversation with the players at the start of any session even if it's something we've gone over before just to really drill it into their minds and make sure that they understand why they're doing what they're doing and i'll ask them like you know th- this is what we're going to work on today what context do you think this would happen in the game or do you already know, you know, does it instantly resonate with you? And we'll have that conversation about when and where it might happen. And sometimes they even give me ideas because, you know, they, I played football till I was like, what, 18, 19. And then you get to uni and you're like, ah, sack it off, whatever. I'm going out with my mates. But um, (laughs) these, these players are playing week in, week out. So they might even be able to offer you, um, some insight and provide you with some inspiration or some new concepts to how you integrate certain skills and qualities into their drills and their training. And before we then, uh, yeah, finish up today, um, I'm in, interested to hear whether you think there are any drills which like uh, young players can do just down the park. So let's say they've got uh, one or two mates. If they want to increase their game speeds, but they're just down the park with a couple of mates, what do you think are the key things which players can do to improve their game speed? I'll probably say if you're a younger player, um, to be honest, just play the game. Like, you know, you've not got a coach there. They're not going to be wanting to think about um, the technical aspects of a drill or like um, isolated components of of um, certain qualities whilst they're down at the park with the mates. Um, so I'd say I'd say just playing the game and letting themselves develop that way. Um, and then if, if they are going to do any actual physical training, um, or, well, not physical training as such, but uh, drills where the physical outputs are a bit higher, just intent. Uh, so that's the main thing that I see with, with younger athletes is um, they often lack, lack intent or confidence to just um, really push really push maximum intent and effort on, on whatever drills it is they're doing. 
Absolutely excellent, mate. And massive thanks for your time today. It's been a pleasure talking. Super interesting to hear your thoughts on that. So uh, I really appreciate it and I look forward to speaking soon. Yes, no, thank you for having me on. Thank you very much, buddy. Cheers. Thanks. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Andy for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. The Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get more information on how to train game speed in football, Andy has a whole mini course based around that topic in the Coach Academy. And all you have to do to get seven days free access is click that link in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be absolutely fantastic if you can share it with a friend, a colleague, or even an athlete. That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.